The I'm Fine podcast is produced by Lemore Media LLC and is run by Project Headspace and Timing. Project Headspace and Timing is a 501c3 that I started in 2017 after a veteran that I was a medic to decided to pull over on the side of the road and end his life. As an organization, Project Headspace and Timing works on veteran advocacy and veteran outreach. What that means is through the advocacy perspective, we try to connect veterans to other resources as early on into the process as possible. What that entails is early contact with veterans, forming a safety net with their family members, friends, and fellow service members, educating them on the resources, and when that veteran is ready to get help, we are there to make sure that they get the help that they need. The outreach aspect is put there to get veterans together to do productive and constructive things, whether it's out in nature, working with other businesses, anything to get them out around other veterans where those good conversations can happen if they want to have them. If you are interested in finding out more information about our organization, please visit projectheadspaceandtiming.org, our Facebook page, Project Headspace and Timing, or our Instagram, which is Project Headspace and Timing. And if you would like to donate to our organization, please visit our website, projectheadspaceandtiming.org. Scroll to the bottom and you will find a link to our Venmo. If you'd like to send us a check, our P.O. Box is P.O. Box 382, Mantino, Illinois, 60950. And if you'd like to sponsor or have any other questions, feel free to reach out to me at Eric P. P. and Paul at projectheadspaceandtiming.org. Thank you. Welcome to episode five, the I'm Fine podcast, where today we're going to talk about suicide in the civilian setting. It's a very hard topic to discuss, but luckily we have enlisted the help of one of our friends, Kathy Myers from the Samuel R. Myers Foundation, who will be here with us in a little bit. We initially thought about tackling both veteran suicide and civilian suicide together, but after we started looking into everything, we kind of thought that they both deserve their own episodes. So this one will just be about civilian suicide, some of the warning signs that go into it, suicide across civilizations, and then again, talking with Kathy Myers. So thank you very much for tuning in. with your freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional hosts, Eric Peterson and Brad Stozik. Episode five. Episode five of I'm Fine. How are you doing today, buddy? Episode five. I'm I'm feeling great. Yeah? Yeah. I like that we're on episode five now. It feels like we're getting the ball rolling. It's... And the schedule, your schedule has been getting crazy <sighs> because of school and you started shadowing. I did. I started observing. Um, or observing. Shadowing, right. observing. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday at um, one of the local high schools. Yeah. Intimidating. I was going to say, do you walk <laughs> in there like thinking that you have it handled because it's a high school and you're an adult or do, do you immediately revert back into that high school state of mind? So I walk in there very confidently because yeah. I'm like, I'm an adult. I'm a Marine. Right. I'm... And then I saw the type of children that are walking in the halls. Then they hurt your feelings. Not even with their words. Just by their, Dude, I swear I passed the kid. He was like 6'8", 250. Just, yeah. He looked like a, just, he looked like a walking vein. Like we were talking <laughs> about when we walked in here, like kids 
now, especially when they get into college sports, like some of the, uh, how big they need to be and all that other kind of stuff. It's just, and, and how fast and athletic they have to be at the same time is mind boggling to me. Very much so. So initially when we wanted to do this episode is, as I briefly discussed in the intro, we we're going to do it and we we're going to tackle it in two parts. We we're going to do a part about veteran suicide because that's something that really resonates a little bit more, I think, with both you and I. Yeah. Yep. And we have more experience with quite a bit more. And then we wanted to also bring in the civilian aspect to it, the civilian suicides. And both of us are friends with Kathy Myers yep. from the Samuel R. Myers Foundation. So obviously that came to mind to have her on. And then as we started looking into things, we realized that like, there's just so much shit out there when it comes to suicide, both in the veteran community and in the civilian community. Yep. And so like to do both together, I don't know, dude, that would have taken for that would have taken hours. It would have been a Joe Rogan podcast. That would have for sure been like a three to four hour conversation, Easily. which maybe one day, not today. No. So we decided to kind of break it down and just talk about the civilian suicide realm and then have Kathy Myers on here in a little bit to kind of help us delve into it a little bit more. So suicide, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, is when people harm themselves with the goal of ending their life, and then they die as a result. A suicide attempt is when people harm themselves with the goal of ending their life, but they do not die. So I looked in to see when like the first documented suicide was. Did you look into that? No, that didn't even cross my mind. I was just curious because I'm like, okay, the history of suicide. Like, we know it's a big deal now. Absolutely. I think I would venture to guess every single person knows somebody that killed themselves. Okay. So the history of suicide, right? Or, yeah. Would you consider like in some cultures, like Japanese culture, for example, like the Sepuku. suicide bombers are like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that suicide or is it for a different reason though? So, and we can get into this a little bit more on the, the veteran side, because I think it ties into that. But what I did find, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, seppuku, 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 it, that is the Japanese situation or whatever you want to call it, where they actually take the sword and end it. Yeah. And like do that. Yep. The kamikaze pilots in World War II, and then in Islamic, in the Islamic world, technically... Suicide is against Islamic law, but when you call it religious martyrdom or whatever terminology, then then it's like, okay. But still, by definition, it's, you know, they're called suicide bombers. So I right. definitely think that that's, that's part of it too. Because my other question with that too, before I get into the, what I found historically, was just the way suicide has been regarded is looked at, has changed a lot through history like right now it's different because it seems like we're hearing about it more and more and more and we're focusing more on mental health and that's a good thing and there's this in my opinion this like deep dark despair type of depression that surrounds suicide that encapsulates suicide and everybody around it when someone kills themselves everybody around that person is like is affected and it's looked at like that but at some points in history it was kind of like eh, whatever it wasn't a big deal yeah and it was just kind of like it was accepted it may not necessarily have been a goal for anybody but it wasn't looked at in the way that we look at it, even though in, in, in a lot of religious texts and things like that, suicide's typically frowned upon. So 
what I found was one of the earliest texts documenting suicide was around 440 BCE. It was a play by Sophocles where a legendary warrior Ajax became enraged after not being given a set of armor crafted by the gods, which was actually given to Odysseus. And this reportedly drove him mad. And then after coming to his senses, he was filled with so much grief. She talked about last episode. What's up? That he actually committed suicide with the sword given to him by the Prince of Troy. So suicide has been happening for like ever. And we're hearing a lot about it now. But I think it's also important to put things into context. And so, like, I looked up when the earliest documented suicide was, and I found that. And then I looked up suicide rates by country. So I was kind of curious about that, too. And I was a little surprised because, again, you come at it. I forget what the term is, but it's like how if you buy a blue Honda Civic, when you go out, you'll just see blue Honda Civic. Is it because... I've been affected by suicide, you've been affected by suicide, that we see so much of it now. I just assume that, oh, America's the worst. We're the worst in suicide. We have to be because I hear about it all the time. Yeah. So actually, according to worldpopulationreview.com, we're not the worst. We're not even in the top 10. Really? Not even in the top 10. The first three countries were countries, two of them, I don't know if I can ever pronounce because I actually haven't heard of them. Lesotho, Guyana, I have heard of, Eswatini, those rates... Lesotho is the worst, 72.4 per 100,000. So per 100,000 people, 72.4 commit suicide. That is the worst. Now, in the top 10 that I found, and I believe this is from 2020, the only Western civilization country that has a high suicide rate is actually Belgium, which ranks at number 11. So it's not in the top 10. It's at 11 with 18.3 suicides per 100,000. And it's also worth noting that Belgium has some of the world's most liberal laws on doctor-assisted suicide or euthanasia, which uh-huh. is likely to kind of favor factor into those statistics. Yep. It's crazy that it's such a problem in other countries too, because you have different cultures. Yep. So it's like, we're not dealing with the same shit, are we? There's no way. From like a humanistic standpoint probably like a loss in that standpoint yes but like from day-to-day life i don't think we're anywhere near the same as far as what i don't even know from experience i i just think it's a totally different experience over there oh yeah you you know i'm underdeveloped and so like do you think that's a factor i do think it's a factor one of the things that i found too when i was reading into some things is that The suicide rate in a lot of areas is among the elderly. And the reason why it's among the elderly is because they don't want to be a burden. Okay. So they go that route. And then there's, you know, countries where euthanasia is legal or legal-ish, where people can make the decision to end their life and then go see a doctor. Where do you stand on that? On euthanasia? Yeah. My opinion on that is with anything else, we'll always default towards usually individual your individual right as a person right and in my opinion as a person you don't get to choose when you get here yeah but you should get to choose when you leave that's just my opinion like you should get to have a say in when you want to leave now that being said i do believe you should be of a good mental state i don't think you should be in an altered mental state i don't think you can be obviously drunk or anything like that when you make that kind of decision right but if you if you say Dude, I've done everything I want to do in this life. Uh, my health is declining. This is declining. Whatever, whatever. I don't want to do this. 
I don't want to continue down this route, then I say, okay, yeah, all right. Because that's how I feel when I get to that point and my body stops working and I'm just a prisoner in my own body. And then my, I have to go through all this other kind of stuff. And I don't want to deal with that, dude. That's me. You know why? Where, where do you stand on it? The same. It's inevitable, right? But yeah. I, I would rather make that decision than suffer if, if, I, if I don't have to. Right. You should be able to make that decision about yourself. Yeah. Because it's not only you that's suffering. It's also your family. I just went through it. You're currently going through it. Ugh, you know, shit. Sorry. But you know what I no, mean? Like no, it's, no. That affects everyone. It's exhausting. And like we were talking about on the way here, and there's the grief that comes with that in that you're guilting yourself for feeling exhausted. And that's one of the one things that I hate the most about how the human brain works. It's like you'll feel something and you can't help but feel that way. And then you feel guilty for feeling that way. And it's not like you meant to fucking make yourself feel that way. And now you're adding anxiety on top of anxiety on top of anxiety. Vicious cycle. But no, so top 10 countries check them out if you're interested but the lowest suicide rates as far as countries are concerned so in those top 10 the lowest was antigua and barbuda which i'm assuming i think antigua those are islands i know those are islands somewhere somewhere where it's really warm and beautiful and nice i've noticed that about several of these places several of these places where the suicide rates are super low fucking beautiful out barbados venezuela depending on where you're at, by the beach, I'm sure it's nice. Honduras, same thing. And then the Philippines. I was like, oh, yeah, nice. We're a very happy people for the most part, which yeah. is true. We're just small, kind of mousy, and we're just really happy to be here. You yeah. know? So I was like, okay. Other countries that were super low in suicide rates, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Afghanistan, 4.1 suicides per 100,000. Iraq, 3.6. And Syria, 2.0. Which I was just like, okay, there's a lot of variables here. One variable is always accurate reporting. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. But there's also something to be said there in that in the book Tribe by Sebastian Younger, which I've talked about on this podcast before, he goes through and talks about war-torn places and the people that lived there and how it affected them mentally. And they talked about how even when they were in these war-torn environments, it created like a sense of community more than anything else because you were so reliant on one another that suicide rates tended to decline. I believe that this was also in that in, in tribe, but I also believe that categorically speaking, like when countries go to war, casualties fucking skyrocket, right? But suicides, I believe, typically get a lot less in insanely stressful environments because I think your body kind of shifts thinking into mm. what's important. And when you become more focused on survival specifically, I think you don't have time to think about that other kind of stuff, but I don't know. And I think for, I only took a brief one semester Islamic studies class, Yeah, but like you said earlier, that does go against their religion pretty hard. So I think that also plays a, plays a role into it. Yeah, it absolutely does. And that was one of the, that is actually one of the protective factors for suicide. So I know we talked about, or you told me before we got here that there was some, that you saw some of the different warning signs. And one of the things I looked into were what are some things that help somebody to not commit suicide? So those are called protective factors. So some of those things, in addition to what Brad just said, cultural, 
and religious beliefs that encourage connecting and help-seeking, discourage suicidal behavior, or create a strong sense of purpose or self-esteem. That's one of the biggest protective factors. We also have limited access to lethal means. So if you don't have anything to kill yourself with, uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty hard. That's why when you're in boot camp, if you threaten to kill yourself, they take away your shoelaces everything. and your belt. They take away everything. Other protective factors, problem solving and coping skills, obviously, being that mental health is so tied to suicide in so many different ways between depression and, and bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, any of these other things that are out there. Suicide can always like is an outlier. That's kind of always yep. an option. So if you have the ability to cope with whatever it is you're dealing with, obviously that's going to protect you against some of these suicidal ideations and things like that. So you said religion is a protector. Yep. Do you think there are people in this world who are like, I need to be with whatever God I believe in, and that's the only way I'll find happiness. So they choose to go that route? Yes. I mean, that's religious martyrdom, right? I, yeah, I guess so. When somebody believes that in doing so, it'll, it'll make them closer to their God. That's always terrified me because that's the type of thing that you can't argue with. And I, I don't say the word talk sense into. I don't use those words because guess what? I don't fucking know. I don't know what happens when we're done here. I just assume it's kind of like men in black where you just kind of zoom out and wear a marble and a bag with a bunch of other fucking marbles in like a locker somewhere. You know what I mean? Yep. Like <laughs> I just kind of assume it's like that. So when the kamikaze pilots, Islamic fundamentalists yep. or, or whatever that are going out there and killing themselves in the name of their God. That's terrifying, man, you know, and I still think it's a part of suicide, but it's not something you can talk to them about, I don't think. And I've met some people that were very much devout to their religious beliefs, mm -hmm. which, like I said, uh, and like we were talking about in the car before we got here, religiously speaking, I'm agnostic, theoretical fence sitter, whatever you believe in, good, as long as it's good for you. But when you get into these places where it's starting to turn more violent, I always wonder at what point can you stop yourself? And kind of say like, okay, how is this productive? Right. The other protective factor that I found was access to mental health care, which is why I think what? suicide rates are so high yes. in a lot of those other countries. Because they're countries where they don't have access to mental health care. And now America has been making it much easier to have that access. They've been more proactive about that, which is nice. So I think that that's helpful. And then also feeling connected to family and community support. Well, hopefully this podcast one day will reach overseas and it'll help people. Oh, yeah, who, for sure. Who don't have, who think they don't have the support and stuff and what they really do. Yeah, I think it's only a matter of time, my friend. And now as far as warning signs. Yeah. So you said you were kind of looking into some of the warning signs when it comes to suicide. I what was. Did, what did you find? Giving stuff away, like if somebody gives their stuff away yeah. that you're connected with, yeah. being distant, having a short fuse. Yep. I feel like it's so hard to, you can't be in somebody's head. So how are you going to know? I'm depressed all the time. How is anybody going to know what I'm thinking? And I think, oh man. So I feel like the warning signs are just the same as depression, are just the same as going through a funk. And I wanted to talk about that before we brought our guest on because I want to hear what she's going to have to say too and I wanted to compare sure. that to what we thought because also what I found and what I thought there are warning signs but there's no single cause for suicide right 
It usually occurs when there's a lot of stress and there's mental health issues and they're all kind of coming together to create this super shitty experience plunges you into despair. Like I said, I found that depression is the most common condition associated with suicide and it's often undiagnosed or untreated and conditions like depression, anxiety, substance abuse problems, especially when unaddressed, increase the risk for suicide. And then it's also important to note that people who actively manage their mental health conditions obviously go on to engage in life as they normally would. Case in point, uh, you and me. Look at us. Here we are. And then as far as the DSM is concerned, what I found was initially in the DSM-5, suicide was really just kind of tied to, it looks like major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. But since then, there was a revamp earlier this year. We talked about before DSM-5-TR, which stands for textual revision, and now includes a freestanding symptom code to indicate current suicidal behavior as well as a history of suicidal behavior that can be given in addition to a psychiatric diagnosis or even in the absence of one. And that is to allow clinicians to highlight this very important symptom because it can be attached to so many things, major depressive disorder, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, substance abuse disorder. I mean, it's attached to a lot of things. So it's nice that they're starting to change some things on the educational side. The only other thing, I mean, before we bring Kathy on, I just wanted to say a couple of things about her without her here. Um, <laughs> I met Kathy a few years ago. And what I know about Kathy, what I knew about Kathy then was unfortunately she lost her son to suicide. And she started an organization about it with her, with her husband, Brandon. And she knew that I'd lost a veteran to suicide. And her and I got together and we talked. And we talked at her kitchen table for hours. And obviously, you know, the passion that I have is there, the passion that she has is there. And from there, we just talked about how we wanted to work together on stuff, like whatever it took. So we've kind of collaborated before on things. We've helped each other out on things. She's a resource for me. And she's just a phenomenal person. And she's one of those people where after you meet them and talk to them, you're just like, thank God you're doing what the fuck you're doing. Like, yes. I'm very happy that you have your job. Yes. And that's how I feel about you. Oh, <laughs> I'm really happy you have Thanks, your job. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I'm welcome. glad I have this job, too. <laughs> and you've known Kathy for a little while, too, yeah? Quite some time, yeah. yeah. I actually used to hang out at her house all the time with her son, Damon. We went to school together, graduated high school together. Yeah, she's a fantastic woman. Very Absolutely cool. wonderful. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and get her set up here. She should be here in a minute. So we'll be back in a second with Kathy Myers from the Samuel R. Myers Foundation. Okay, we are back with our guest today, Kathy Myers of the Samuel R. Myers Foundation. Kathy, thank you so much for being here again. Like you said before, I hope that you being here is a great way for you to continue spreading the message of all the great work you're doing. We kind of talked a little bit before we brought you in here just about our experiences with you and how thankful I was when I met you because we've both had intimate experiences with suicide, although very different ones. And I was just so thankful when I met you that you're doing what you're doing. Well, thanks. I appreciate you guys so much for having me too. Because yeah. 
I think that's the first step is listening. So I could tell my story a thousand times, but if nobody was listening, it wouldn't matter. So I appreciate what you guys do as well and for having me out. Yeah, for sure. Well, because in, in mental health, before we get into anything else, like people always talk about breaking the stigma, breaking the stigma, breaking the stigma, right? But it's like, what is that? What is breaking the stigma? And I don't think breaking the stigma is so much... I don't know. I, and I'd be interested to hear both of your guys' opinions on this. But like <laughs> breaking the stigma is making it normal, is making sure that people don't feel judged, I think, and that they can just talk about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, free of judgment from their peers so they can just freely discuss it. And like mental health was kind of frowned upon for a while sure. to to be discussed that openly. And now we're we're seeing it kind of be the other way. And I know the Samuel R. Myers Foundation talks about breaking the stigma a lot. What is breaking the stigma, you know, to you? Well, I think first and foremost, our foundation's goal is to educate public sector employees, parents, anyone who will listen, of course, just about mental health and what that actually means. One of the things that we experienced with Sam was he was super embarrassed about living with his three different mental health issues, and he did not want anyone to know. Hindsight, looking at that, it probably wasn't a good idea for us to honor that as we didn't tell anybody. My family didn't even know until it was adamantly clear that we had to share that he had issues going on. But I think maybe what my perspective is, I think it's super important for those of us who live with mental illness to be very open and those of us who don't live with it to be, like you said, very non-judgmental. It's hard to explain, I guess, sometimes, but I think it's it's super important for people who live with mental illness to understand that people who don't are not mind readers. I have someone very close to me who is struggling, and I just found out. I'm very close to that person. And so it was eye-opening to me because I was thinking, I'm so close to this person, and I didn't realize they were struggling. But I think those of us who live with mental illness are very good at hiding things, putting on the smile, doing our day-to-day -day activities, mm -hmm. and to the point that we can't hide it where we just completely collapse and break down. And then people are like, what is going on? Right. Um, that was a common theme at Sam's wake was I had no idea. I had no idea. And he was very, very good at hiding it. And I think because he was super happy and he was always striving to find those who weren't happy and to comfort them. Are you okay? We had a, recently a friend of his share a story with us that was, was super sweet. She said that she had been admitted to one of the hospitals for a mental health issue. And when she came back to school, everybody was just like looking at her and walking away or just, you know, side eye in her. And she said that Sam came right up to her and hugged her and said, Hey, how you doing? And she said at that time, I barely even knew Sam, but he just wrapped his arm around her. He said, I heard what, you know, that you were in the hospital. How are you doing? Are you okay? Oh. And yeah, I mean, but I think that's because he knew what it felt like to be hiding and not being open about who you really are. Have you heard that Robin Williams quote about that? So Robin Williams has this like, I loved Robin Williams. Yes. I was yeah. a huge Robin Williams mm -hmm. fan. Absolutely. Because for what he did on screen and off. He had a quote about making people laugh and he said something along and I'm paraphrasing. He said something along the lines of like the people that try to make other people so happy are doing it because they know what it feels like to be miserable. Yeah. And when like he said that, you're just like, oh, God, 
Yeah. You know, like that kind of hit me deep because that's that's exactly how I feel a lot of the time. And so we talked about the breaking the stigma, but if you wouldn't mind, Kathy, could you give a little history up to the creation of the Samuel R. Myers Foundation? Sure. When Sam was about in eighth grade, as we were talking before, my husband was in Afghanistan. And I started noticing just small, odd behaviors with Sam. He would tap his elbow and then tap his other elbow or spin around before he jumped on the stairs or just weird, weird little ticks like that. And when I asked him about it, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not doing that. And so I said, okay. So then when my husband came home for one of his three-week times at home, my husband said, yeah, I noticed that. So we took him to the doctor. She said, I think it sounds like he has a, a little bit of OCD. So let's take it to the next level, see a professional psychiatrist. So we did. And she said, yes, he has severe OCD. And I know our nation, everyone in society uses that term very flippantly. Right. Yeah. It isn't about, oh, I need to have my desk neat or I can't leave until my toothbrush is put away or my bed is made. It literally controlled his every thought and every movement every day, all day, 24-7, 365. His number was four. So he had to do everything in fours. Just to give you an idea of his day, he would wake up and he would blink his eyes four times, squeeze his hands four times, tap his feet on the floor four times, take eight steps to the bathroom, spin around four times, brush his teeth in fours in increments of four. He would flush the toilet four times and then come down the steps, only touching eight steps when we had 13 or something like that, or maybe 11. He would spin around four times before he got in his car, turn his car on and off four times, and then make sure his radio was on a volume of increment of four. So literally it dictated every step dictated of his life. Dictated every step of his life. Which is an issue, I think, that when people I guess, glorify a mental health issue, which we talked about in our episode with uh, Melanie, yep. it's about people just saying, oh, I have OCD, like you said, because mm -hmm. I like my desk to be neat. And then I would have to imagine as somebody that's dealt with someone that's really been dealing with the throes of, of true obsessive compulsive disorder, you're just like, that's got to be a little offensive. You think this is something fun or cute or something, but you don't understand mm -hmm. the weight right. that somebody is under that's mm -hmm. dealing with this. Yes. He also had severe anxiety caused by all of that. He had intrusive thoughts with his OCD, which is another layer of it. And his intrusive thought was, if I don't do all these things in fours, if I don't rectify anything that isn't in fours, my dad will pass away. And his dad is in law enforcement. Right. So, oh, I mean, man. and then he would say, I, I know logically there's no connection between those two, but my mind says I can't not do that. That's scary. Yes. And so we thought how we, how we really found out about most of it was we thought he had some digestive issues too on top of all of this, but it was all anxiety driven because he went through all the testing of all, you know, oh, you've got, it's just so sad because I, I think back to those times and it's like, they thought he had, ironically, Brad, Chiari malformation. Yes. Yeah, they thought he had that. <laughs> really? Yes. W was there any type, like what type of symptoms that made him think that they had that? Well, he would wake up in the morning and he would be super sick to his stomach. Like he, when he would sit up, he would get super sick to his stomach and they thought maybe there was some kind of imbalance off there. And so we had an MRI and they said, oh, it's very mild if he has it. But that was kind of what started it because he was getting that nausea. But it was just the anxiety of 
knowing he had to do A, B, C, D, all these things in fours all day long, and it would just overwhelm him with anxiety, which would cause him to throw up. So then we were sending him to therapy, and he was, we we're trying to find a medication to calm his OCD down. And these types of medicines are six months on and off if they're not working to be placed on a prescription and then figure out if it's working. And then if it's not working, it, it's about a six month time period. So we went through probably six different medication regimes, nothing working. So that's like two years of him still suffering, counting, spinning, tapping, all of these things. So he played football probably 16 seasons indoor and outdoor. And his sophomore year, he said, I, I'm not going to be able to play anymore. And when we asked him why, he said, because football is in increments of five and I can't do it. So he would, yeah, so he would line up there on the on the line of scrimmage and his coach would have tell him, you know, run 10 yards out and whatever in turn. And he, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. He said, when I would be thinking 10 yards, 10 yards, 10 yards, it would cause like a disruption in his thinking. He said, almost like a radio that goes staticky and he, and he couldn't focus on catching the ball. So he'd mess up or he'd only go eight yards or, or whatever. He's not thinking it was. straight. It's right? throwing him off his right? game. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, so, he can't help that. And that's the scary part because he's sitting there telling himself, I know that this isn't how this works, but he can't help but feel that anyway. Correct. He quit football and. I remember his eighth grade year, his graduation party, we have a pool and it literally was standing room only in that pool. That's how many people were there. Just, he had so many friends and he had so much fun and he was, he was just such a good guy. And then here we are a sophomore year, he quit football and he literally would go to school and come home and he wouldn't have anybody calling. He wouldn't be talking to anybody, going anywhere. And some of it was I mean, not intentional, but like his friends couldn't leave things alone. Like, why are you shuffling your feet? Why are you tapping? Why do you keep looking at the windows in the door? Why are you looking at the desk? Why, you know, and he didn't want to explain because he didn't want to be treated different as what he told us. And so that adds into it. Now oh you're God. alone. Yeah. And the anxiety that they have to put onto it because you can't even talk to your friends anymore because, and they're doing that out of love. I mean, I'm assuming, you know right. what I mean? Like they're concerned. Right. They want to talk to you about mm -hmm. it. But either you don't want to confront it or you're so exhausted because you deal with it every day that you don't also want to talk about it in addition to dealing with it all the time. It's interesting because, you know, hindsight, we look at it and and I feel like if he would have said to his friends, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with this. I'm trying to figure it out. And I feel like they would have been helpful. Yeah. And I think that's where it comes in. Like you've, you've got to be honest if you want to break the stigma. We all have to be honest about it. And that includes therapy too. Like if you're going to go to therapy and you're not going to be honest, you might as well not go because nobody can help you if you're not honest. I mean, mental health therapy, any type of therapy. Mm -hmm. A good friend of mine, he's a physical therapist and he found issues with people that were coming in to see him because they, they didn't really want to try and want to be there. And then they get frustrated that they weren't getting better. And I mm -hmm. drew parallels between that and myself going to therapy for mental health stuff and, and, realized relatively quickly uh, and like in that episode where we talked to to melanie who's a counselor our friend and also a veteran it's something that you have to work on mm -hmm. all the time it's yeah. not something you can go to a therapist once every other week once a month right. but it's so hard because it's not something you even want to deal with in the first place so right. it's like you have these conflicting feelings inside i think people don't want like they don't want to get it because like the stigma absolutely they don't want to get the help because if, if you get help, then, oh, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're crazy. I, I had to go to 
I went to counseling in eighth grade and I didn't want to tell anybody about it. So right. I, it's yeah. Yeah. Because people are going to treat you different. That was the main thing Sam always said. I just don't want to be treated differently. And kids are awful too. Kids are mean. I mean, they're not yeah. nice. Right. Well, yeah, but a lot of the times too, they're just projecting their own internal bullshit mm-hmm. because yep. of their environment or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's just this weird perpetual cycle of taking in negative energy and then putting out negative energy, right. which, which is why it's so hard to be that person to try to stop that, you know what I mean? And truly break that stigma. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But so once he got out of football, was that like the first very clear kind of red flag or was that? No, that was, that was probably two years post us finding out that he had OCD, but that was when we realized this is bigger than yeah. just we're going to get some help and move forward. So he continued to go to therapy, but he was very bullheaded about it. And he wasn't, I don't think, in a place in his mind that he wanted to be there. And he was becoming angry about the fact that he had to deal with this. And he was going to have to deal with this forever. One of the physicians that he saw said that to his face. And at 14, that was a lot. You know, she said, you're going to have to learn how to figure this out because this is lifelong for you. It's never going away. And so I felt like the wording of that was horrible. That was the last time we saw that person because I felt like you need to say things like, yes, you're going to have to deal with this, but we got it. We're right. going to we're going to learn coping skills. You can have a productive life. And and it just wasn't put that way. And and I think boys especially are very cut and dry, black and white. And so he was just. He, then he got really angry. Yeah. So then he was for a bit doing better. He got a job and so he was doing better. But then he got exposed to marijuana. And I know that's a whole topic in itself. But at this time was not legal. My husband's police officer, my daughter's adopted. And we were very fearful about the repercussions of that. And we didn't feel like it was a healthy choice. And so then that became another thorn in the whole situation of how we're going to handle it and what we're going to do. So then his junior year, he was also a state wrestler. He'd been to state two times. And his junior year, he quit wrestling. And so then it was like, I I felt like idle hands are not good. (laughs) So then anyway, he kind of just started having marijuana as the focus of his life. Because at first he was like, I I can smoke in the morning, then I can make it through school. And then it was like, I have to smoke it in the afternoon to make it through the night. And then it was like, I have to smoke marijuana all day, every day. And it just became, instead of, my husband describes it like it's Novocaine for an infected tooth. Yes, it makes you feel better for a time. But once it wears off, you still have all your issues that you have to figure out. If not more, because you procrastinated. Well, not yeah. Off. You know what and I mean. And not only that, but but made choices that were not wise. Because then he did start getting in trouble with the law. They all knew if they pulled him over, they were going to get a pot ticket, and and so then it became this vicious cycle. Yeah. So then his senior year, he got. We had a a big altercation at our house. He and my husband kind of got to a match. He punched my husband right in the face, which I was like, what is happening? This is not our family. We don't do this. And so we were just like, something's going to have to give here. And so he punched my husband in the face. And my husband, before I even blinked, had him on the ground in a headlock. And I mean, I I just was like, what is happening? So my husband just said, you need to call the police. So we called the police. They came in the struggle that my husband and 
Sam were having on the ground, some pills fell out of Sam's pocket and we didn't know what they were because he wasn't on any medication at that time. And it ended up, they were prescription. I, I think it was Adderall. I don't really remember at this time. And the police were like, well, you have a little bit of a bargaining tool here. You can say you're going to go to jail for the Adderall or you can go to the hospital. And so he said, well, let, let us talk to him. The police officer said that. So he went down and talked to him and Sam agreed to go to the hospital. And so Sam went and then he stayed 10 days at the hospital and they diagnosed him as bipolar as well as OCD and severe anxiety. So, and we knew at that time, we knew there was something more than OCD because it, he just was out of character sometimes. I mean, he, he'd be perfectly fine and the next day. He'd be really, really mad. And, and it was tough because we didn't know, is he doing more than pot or is this some more mental health issues? So after that, we had to have a meeting with the school. He's a senior now and it's in February, I think. Had to have a meeting with the school for him to be able to go back to school. And I remember at that meeting, looking at all these teachers' faces and light bulbs just going off. This is why he acted that way. And this is why he acted that way. And and that was when I said to myself, we made the wrong choice not telling, not speaking up. Because I felt like he had created this persona of himself. I mean, he was a really great kid. Right. But... All these choices and decisions he had made at school and acting out and getting in trouble with the police and all this. Now they had a reason why this kid that they knew all through grade school and high school all of a sudden was not acting the way he used to. So that was when my husband and I said we really should have been open about it at that time. I also feel like hindsight obviously is twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. so easy after a super especially any sort of traumatic experience i feel like it's human nature to look back on it and be like oh i should have just in done a b c and d and it's like yeah. yeah okay i feel like it's natural at least for me i always look for and i feel like a lot of people look for like those definitive lines in the sand yep. where it's like okay when it this happens then that means this if I see my child do this, then I know I need to do this. But that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. We just live in this giant expanse of gray where we're trying to collect all the information we can and make the best decision based on that information. And then after the fact, obviously, we get more information, at which time we say, oh, then I should have done this, which is so unfair to do to yourself. Yes. To just create that additional guilt. Everyone does it, though. I agree. I, 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 I mean, I did it when I had my medical issues and I went to a hospital and everyone's like, well, you should have gone to a different hospital. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. Well, yeah, Good no, talk. I, Appreciate I, it. I got that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But anyway, sorry. So no, I just, no um, I can't imagine just navigating through that because I just feel like you're just looking for something to grab a hold of. You're trying to find those definitive lines in the sand but at the time they don't really exist because how are you supposed to see that when you're not only dealing with everything that you're dealing with but also all of the things that you haven't mentioned that are a part of this story like your everyday life everything else that you're dealing with at the same time careers personal stuff whatever it's like it's so hard to pick up on those things in the moment but so like you were saying so that was a senior year Mm -hmm. right so the high school is very gracious and they said, you know, you turn in your core work, Sam, and, and we'll be all good. If you need to do half days, you can do that. If you need to do full days, if you need to come in the afternoon instead of the morning. And I appreciated that. I did want to get him graduated from high school at least. So anyway, he graduated. 
And right before graduation, there was an incident and he and I had a conversation and I said, buddy, listen, you need to make different choices. And if you don't start making different choices, once you graduate, you're going to have to find somewhere else to live because he was bringing drugs to our house. Like I said, my husband's police officer. I mean, that could have completely destroyed my husband's career. My daughter's adopted. That could have completely destroyed her life if DCFS would have got involved because there's drugs in our house. I mean, we had no idea. And we were doing our best to help him. But, you know, he had pretty much shut us out at that point. Wasn't going to therapy. None of that. So that afternoon when I got home, he had moved out. And I was super upset, but I wasn't washing my hands of it. I just knew he's 18 years old. He moved out. I mean, like, what can I do about it? And... So then he kind of bounced around from friend to friend for a couple weeks, and then he landed at my parents' house. We had a discussion. I said, I know it's hard to hear, but you probably want to lock up your medications and, and things like that because it's, it's not our Sam that we know. I, d- I don't really know what's going on in his head. So he ended up that summer just really partying and, and hanging out with his friends and that kind of stuff. He was still working, but... Him and his friends were going around one night and they were opening car doors that were unlocked and taking change. Well, that's a felony. I didn't know if anybody knew that, but it's, it's a felony. So one of his friends ended up taking a dirt bike from someone's house and putting it behind the bushes at my parents. And the police officer came, found it. And then, of course, it was at my parents' house and that's where my son lived. So he was arrested and uh, he spent a couple days in jail. My husband said, Sam, I'll get you a lawyer this one time. Don't ever ask me to get you one again. So my husband got a lawyer and he got out of jail and it ended up, we understand you didn't steal that dirt bike. Someone else did and that all panned out. But that's when we were really scared. Like, where's this going to take him? Like, is he going to become this criminal? Is he going to be homeless? Is he going to be, I I had no idea. Is he going to be one of the guys you see on the streets of Chicago, you know, has mental health issues and is living underneath Wacker Drive? I mean, I, I was really scared. So he ended up coming back home, trying really hard. I mean, you could see he was trying. You could see that he was grateful that he, he could see, I have parents who care about me. They love me. They want best for me. I could see him working towards that. But his mental health had spiraled so far down that I think it was hard for him to see a light above him. So from court, from all that happening, he had a $1,000 fine and a year's court supervision. And he said, I just don't know if I can do a whole year without getting in trouble. You know, we were saying, you're here. We don't care if you're here 24-7. If you get a job, you go to work and you come home and that's it. You're here with us for a year till that's over. And we'll pay the $1,000. You can pay us back. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine. So we had that. And then he had a car that, that he had bought on his own. Well, the car broke down and it wasn't fixable. And so he didn't come to us and say, hey, I need a new car. Can you help me? He just went and took all the money he had and bought a new car. But it wasn't new. It was used. And within two weeks, that car was shot and not fixable. So he was delivering pizzas for a restaurant in Miantino, and that was his job. So he got fired. So within like two weeks, he had a $1,000 fine, a year's court supervision, no money, and he lost his job and no car. And I know that to somebody who isn't living with mental health issues, that might not be a big deal. But for him, it was like, 
what pushed him over the edge. So Saturday, December 10th, he spent the day with me. And the week before that, leading up to that Saturday, it had been a great week. He was funny. He was laughing. He was eating dinner with us. It was just such a good week. And when you live with someone who has mental health issues, a good week is like, okay, it's a good week. Maybe we turned a corner. You know, we were excited. We were feeling hopeful and we weren't focusing on negative. We were focusing on things are going well. So that Saturday, I took him to get his last check. We were talking about goals, short-term, medium-term, long-term goals. He was positive. We laughed. We talked about funny stuff that had happened that I didn't know about, you know, kind of... (laughs) Stories you don't normally tell your mom. And so then about four o'clock, he said he was going to go hang out with some friends. And I said, okay, make good choices. It's what I always said to my boys. And he left and he chose to end his life that day. And so that goes to show you if you're not okay, you need to tell somebody because I'm his mom and I was with him all day. And I didn't see one ounce of anything that told me that that is where he was going and what he was going to do. And I don't know if it's true. I I don't, but I kind of feel like things were going well and maybe he had resolved himself to the fact that he was going to do this. And so he knew it was almost over and that's why he was in a good mood. Or if he was doing so well that he just wanted to go out on a high, I'm not sure. I'll never know that. So about 530 the police came to our house and said, hey, we're looking for Sam. And we said, why? And he said, well, because we just caught him on a home video, someone's ring camera or whatever. And he held someone up by gunpoint for some pot. And we said, what? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, this is completely out of character. Like, And my husband's like, are you sure it was a gun? You know, I think it was an airsoft gun or something. And he's like, no, it's it was a gun. And we have it on video and we know it's Sam. We didn't think at all it was my husband's gun because from day one, my husband would come straight home from work, go straight to the gun locker, put his gun away before he did anything, before he hugged us, before he kissed us, before he went to the bathroom, anything. And that was his routine for 25 years. So the police said, if you get a hold of him, you know, you need to call us. We just really want to get the gun off the street. And and we were just like, what is happening? Like, this is not Sam. I mean, this is the same kid who goes up to the girl and hugs her and says, are you okay? You know, I mean, that was Sam. So my husband ran downstairs to see the gun locker. I ran upstairs just to go to his room to see like, I don't know if I could figure out where he was at or where he was doing or whatever. And laying on his desk was a stack of letters. There were seven of them. So I opened the first one and it said, mom, and I just closed it because I thought I can't, I can't do this. This isn't happening. Mm -mm. So I came downstairs and as I came downstairs, my husband was coming upstairs and he said, it's my gun. And I said, what? Because the keys to that gun locker in the basement were locked in another safe in our room that we didn't think anybody even knew about. It was under my husband's side of the bed, up by his head. So there's no way anybody could get to him without him waking up. And I said, what is happening? So my husband ran to see where that safe was. And that safe was actually gone. It was just a small safe. And I handed the letters to my husband and he opened it again and just closed it and said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not reading these. So we called the police. They came back. We said, you know, my husband said, here's the information. It's my gun. We have these letters and we're afraid Sam's not in his right state of mind. And so we didn't know what he was thinking. Like, was he going to go do something so the police would shoot him? Was he going to end his life on his own? We had no idea. 
So we start calling everybody we know. My husband's on the phone with Sprint. I'm calling every number they give him. We're trying to ping his phone. Everybody we talked to said, you know, I haven't seen him. Nope, haven't seen him. And we were just saying, well, he's not well. If you see him, you need to hang on to him and call us and we'll come get him. So I was calling Sam in between, waiting for him to answer. Then finally, one time he answered and I said, Sam, where are you at? Dad's coming to get you. And he's like, no, I'm hanging out with friends. And I said, no, dad's going to come and get you. The police were here and, and we need to come and get you right now. And he said, mom, I'm fine. And I'll be back later. And he hung up. And I was just like, no, you know, so, you know, living in a smaller town, we don't have very many cell towers. So the ping we got was like a mile radius around a certain area and kind of between Mantino and Piatone. So my husband said, you keep calling people. I'm going to start looking. So four of Sam's really good friends, two in each car, and then my husband was in his car. They were all driving around all night looking for Sam. It snowed really bad that night. And so about two in the morning, you know, Brandon came home. He's like, I, I can't find him. You know, the, the four boys can't find him. I can't find him. We don't really know what to do. For the next four days, that's what we did. Just every day, we'd wake up, get on our snow pants and boots, and we'd just look. We'd call his friends. Where can we look? We don't care what you guys did at this place. Just tell us where to look. So we just looked in abandoned buildings. We looked in abandoned cars, under bridges, in the brush, just anywhere we could think of. We were looking for him and, and we were putting out flyers. And I kept saying, oh, Sam's going to make a fool of us. He's probably somewhere, somewhere, you know, just hanging out. And, and he's going to come home and say, mom, you know, what are you doing? But then uh, Tuesday the 13th, we called his friends and said, okay, you know, we're starting again. Give us some places to look. And they told us about Diverse Attack, which has some empty buildings. And then they said, you know, sometimes we would go to this bridge. And I said, okay. So we decided to go to the bridge. And we didn't know about them. We had no idea where we were going. So we pulled onto this bridge and parked. And I went down one bank. And I was kind of looking up, like, between where the road would meet and the bridge would meet. Think, or the ground in the bridge would meet, thinking maybe he was tucked up in there because he left our house with no coat. He had on a sweatshirt and pants. And I was looking, and I didn't see anything. And as I turned around, I didn't have to crane my neck or move my head at all. I just turned around. And on the other side of the bank, I saw him laying there. And I knew it was him because I could see his pants and his shoes, you know. And by the grace of God, from the chest up, he was covered in snow. And so I didn't see anything that was too horrible. And then pretty much I don't remember anything else the rest of that day. Yeah. But my husband said that I was screaming Sam's name over and over and I, and I was coming up the bank and, and he, I said, he's down there, he's down there. And so my husband went down and my husband, same thing was looking and didn't see anything. He was looking the same way I was. And he said, you know, my wife hasn't eaten or slept in four days. I got to get her to the hospital. And he said, and I was thinking that's what I'm doing. I'm taking her to the hospital. She's delirious now she's seeing things and as he turned around he saw Sam on the other bank as well and so he came up and he went down to the other side and because that's where he was on that side and saw him saw his phone just you know not that he had thrown it or dropped it but it just had turned it off and placed it there and um he had used my husband's gun and, and ended his life so that was the start of roller coaster number two that we've been on for the past six years just learning to live with that and um doing what we can there are no words there are no words to even start to try to think 
of how one would feel or one would deal with that situation. But I'd be willing to bet dollars to donuts. That is in, I don't know, the top one or two fears of everybody. As far as a parent, if you're a parent, it's probably your number yeah. one fear. Yeah. And so before we get into the foundation itself, from that mental health perspective, how did you and Brandon find the strength to take something that has destroyed so many people in the past, losing a child, and you've used it to do something so incredible that helps other people. How were you able to find that kind of strength? I can remember the day after Sam passed, my husband and I always sleep back to back. We never sleep facing each other. And when we woke up, we were facing each other. And during those early days, when you first wake up, it was the worst part because you wake up and you just sort of like, okay, I'm awake. And then you remember, oh yeah, my son died. But I remember it was the absolute day after he had passed away. And, and I said right away, you know, I opened my eyes and my husband's eyes were open and, and we were both crying. And I said, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to navigate this. And he said, well, there's first a few things. My husband and I are Christians and we find lots of our strength through our beliefs. He said, first and foremost, we are going to want to pull away from God. But we need to remember that God didn't do this. He didn't cause this. He didn't make Sam do this. We live in a horribly broken world where we're all affected by everybody's actions and reactions. And God's not, a, in our opinion, not a puppet master that points and says, oh, you're going to live with mental illness and you're going to die by suicide. I think he will I think he created our lives to be like the Garden of Eden and like heaven, but not like this. Right. And I feel like he will be by my side if I ask him and he will help guide me through it. But I don't, I just don't think that God just says, I'm going to control all this. I, I just don't view him in that way. I view him as my heavenly father, like my earthly father wants the best for me and he will help me and guide me, but he doesn't control me. Right. So he said, we're going to really want to lean away from God and pull away from him, but we're going to need to lean into him if we're going to find the strength. I think that, that that just makes so much sense hearing you say it. Just because, And as I said, so myself, I've always been agnostic by nature. I'm just a theoretical fence sitter. Although when I hit my lowest point, I realized that I needed some sort of fundamental framework upon which to build the rest of my character on. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was the philosophy of stoicism. So I really fell into that because I think that everybody, whatever you believe, as long as you believe it with your heart and you can go to it in your darkest moments, and that is a beautiful thing that you should be very happy about. But to have the foresight to say, we have to pull back initially, because I would imagine so many other people in the same position would want to either distance them, themselves completely or completely go towards it. But I would imagine that the anger, the anger that you can't even define that you would have and you would want to lash out with, mm -hmm. you would want to take that out somewhere. And so by pushing, by, it seems like that by distancing yourself just enough for now is allowing yourself to say like, listen, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to want to blame this, that, or the other, but I just, I got to distance myself for a little bit until I can deal with it again. Yeah. Is that kind of fair mm -hmm. to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because I can remember 
Easter of the following year, I was at church and was singing all these praise songs. And I, I would just sit with my head down, you know, because I, I did want to be close to God, but I was, like you said, so angry. And because I feel, of course, God has the power to do that, but I just don't think he does. I just don't. But I was sitting there with my head down and I said on Easter morning, when we're celebrating Christ rising after being on the cross, I said, you have no idea what I'm going through. I said that to God <laughs> on Easter morning well, after his son's been you know, on the cross. Uh, but anyway, it, and then it just hit me. Wait a second. Yes, he does know what I'm going through. And that was a turning point for me and my anger because I was very angry. The other thing my husband said that morning was we're going to have to show people a lot of grace because suicide's a hard thing. People aren't going to know what to say. They're going to say things that they don't mean when they're just trying to come up with words to comfort you. Like you said, there are no words besides I'm sorry and I'm here for you. There's nothing you can say or do that's going to make me feel better. It's just incredible that your husband just knew all this stuff. There's no perfect way to handle it. There's no good way. You're just doing your best. You're treading water until you can find some land to stand on. And like, I feel like in the grief process, and we talked about this in the last episode, but you know, there's the five stages of grief. And I think that some people just think that, okay, you're going to start here. Then you go here, 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 and then you end on acceptance. And really the analogy we used is just, you take a bunch of cooked spaghetti noodles and you just throw them at the table. And you're yeah. like, that's what grief is because yeah. you're bouncing between all these different feelings and you can't control it. And there's no, like, sometimes you'll know that you're getting into one. A lot of the times you don't, and you're just doing your best. And then on top of all these feelings that you're having that you can't help comes the second stage of guilt that you are now having on yourself for feeling those things, which is adding additional anxiety. And it just, you're just mounding this stuff on top of each other. And the one thing that I've found on my side is just having somebody that can be the strong person is so crucial, but it's also so crucial that that person isn't the only person that's a strong person. And, and, and I don't think it's ever the case. It's usually bouncing around. Like I'm having a moment, I need my wife to be strong. And then my wife's having a moment needs me to be strong because it's just, that's so difficult, but it's just so, I don't even know what the right word would be. It's just, I think it was so beneficial that he knew these things mm-hmm as you were going through them to at least cushion some of this blow, right? right? Yeah. We're really lucky too, in a sense. My parents lost their first daughter when she was two and a half. And so my parents were very proactive in saying, it's going to be rough. You guys are going to want to blame somebody and it's usually going to be your spouse and you're going to need to let each other be mad and let each other be sad. And you're going to have to navigate through it as long as you know that you're holding each other's hand and you're going to make it to the other side. So we were, I mean, I, I think it's 80% of marriages don't make it in the loss of a child. Yeah. That's gigantic. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's way more than 50%. But what you just said too, is just also I think the most important thing in any sort of grief situation is just being as upfront and honest with other people as possible. It's like we talked about before, my mom's going through hospice right now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have talked to me about losing their their mother and they've said, it's going to be the worst. It's Mm -hmm. going to be the worst experience. You're going to get through it, but it's more difficult than anything you could, you could ever imagine. And for anybody to, to kind of tell you that where at least 
at least you can sort of see what's coming mm -hmm. and your mind is already kind of starting to set it okay well i know it's this human beings are incredibly resilient as far as civilizations are concerned and history is concerned so it doesn't take away it doesn't make it any easier to deal with mm -hmm. but now you're not going to get as blindsided Right. You know what I mean? Right. Because something that blindsides you in a situation like that when you're feeling that vulnerable is enough to add to that 80%, right. Right. I feel like. So shortly after his funeral and I'll, maybe a month after he passed away, I said to my husband, we have to do something. I have to do something with this ball of blech that's in my lap. I have to do something with it. And I don't know what that is, but I have to do something. And so we just started brainstorming. And he said, what about if we start a foundation and, you know, we could come up with a, a dialogue about our experience and use Sam's story to help other people see maybe red flags and how to handle those red flags. And, you know, just even I think with our careers, my husband's law enforcement now is healthcare. Both of those things have just an emotional callus that kind of develops over time when you're like, oh, here we go again. It's the same kid. It's the same patient. It's the same, you know, you kind of get that callus to him where you just don't really care anymore. You're not sympathetic to that person anymore. And he said, maybe we can help people with that as well, you know, in the, in law enforcement and teaching and all of those things. And so we decided to come up with the foundation. So we created a dialogue where we just kind of tell Sam's story. And the goal of it is, is that we let people know it's okay if you're not okay. We try to educate people that mental health isn't something that somebody chooses and that they just oh, I'm just going to choose to have this and live right. my life this way. It's a health condition. Your brain's an organ. And if it's not working properly, it's not working properly. And then also, if you are living with mental illness, how it's your responsibility to understand it, make healthy choices, and do what you can to learn how to live with those issues. And then we've done other things, like we got a bill passed. It's called Sam's Bill, Yep, where law enforcement has to have eight hours of training every three years in mental health which they didn't have before at all. They would get it some at the police. The academy. Yeah, the academy. Yeah. Thank you. And that was it. And then you got your whole career. And, and things have changed, I believe, since 25 years ago when my husband started in law enforcement. And then we've held a couple youth mental health first aid trainings, which I think are super helpful. I know, I think it was 2018, maybe 2019, we did all the teachers from eighth grade to kindergarten in the Bradley school districts. And so that, I mean, if you can get that training and that was eye opening to me because it, it made me realize, like you said, going back to the guilt of it, <laughs> so many things I didn't know, you know, I just so many signs like Sam would say, I'm so tired. I'm exhausted from the repetitiveness of my life, but I didn't know that that was a sign that he was going to end his life. I would say knowledge is is power and it's always a cliche saying until you find yourself in situations like this where you're like oh i understand and to try to share that message with other people especially people that may not never have dealt with anybody with any sort of mental health issues or anything like that is such it, it can be such a an obstacle to, to overcome but you guys have managed to not only affect change legislatively but also within the community at all the schools and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So in doing that, which is just incredible, when it comes to sharing the story, like I said, there, there are zero words. And you and your husband have managed to take that pain and do something constructive with it. But in telling the story, does that affect you 
negatively having to go over it so often or how does that affect things or, or is it because it's part of something constructive it's helpful for you i definitely think because it's something constructive it has a healing element to it it's just kind of a weird thing I'm not trying to make this a, a church sermon but one of the verses that really helped me says that god will come alongside you and help you through your hard times so you will come alongside the next and help them that really has helped me to always know, you know what, I have a platform. Someone has come and asked me to speak about Sam's story, and there's someone who's going to be there who needs to hear it. And so I'll do it. And some days I have no problem getting up and do it. We just spoke at the roundtable, the mental health roundtable with Rhonda Showers, and I cried. And that was the first time I've cried at one of our events in a long time. I think it was because one of the girls in the audience knew Sam and told a story that I'd never heard before. So it got me choked up. Yeah. But there is definitely a healing element to it. If I can help somebody to be able to skip four steps that I didn't get to skip when I was trying to help Sam, I want to. Because it's, I don't want anybody to suffer. I don't want anybody to go through all the stuff we went through for five years. And then now, like I said, a new roller coaster that we've been on for six years. And I think, too, grief comes in waves. And for anybody out there who needs to hear it, I promise you they come farther apart as time goes on. You don't ever get over it, but you can kind of see it coming. Oh, yeah, here comes an anniversary. Here comes a birthday. Here comes Christmas. You can kind of prepare. I know I'm going to need to take a couple days to get through this week or, or whatever, like the first week of December. It's Sam's birthday is December 1st. And so usually my husband and I go away for that weekend just because... It's hard because you have, like you were talking about this earlier, there's so many elements to it. So my husband and I have Sam's death, but then we have our children who are still alive who are dealing with Sam's death. And then we have our parents who are dealing with Sam's death. And then we have our family and then we have friends and then we have a community. And then we have, you know, it just, the ripple just goes on and on. I read an article once that talked about suicide. One suicide affects 10,000 people. And at first I was like, no way. But then when you think about it, there's me and my husband and there's everybody that I know. Because everybody I know, my friends, my coworkers, parents, they're all, they all have been at least touched by my experience of my son's death. And then you got my husband, the same. And then you have my parents and then you have our kids. And then, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, anybody my son comes in contact with somehow will hear that his brother died by suicide and, and they'll be affected or touched or at least thought, oh, wow, you know. So it probably is 10,000 people. I think, yeah. And mm -hmm. as you say that, absolutely, especially in a position like yours where you've done so much with it that so many people now can learn from what you've been through. And that is something that I don't know how that kind of information would get shared in any more of a constructive manner than by somebody that unfortunately had to deal with it. One of the things that and I quote this and I, or I reference this book often just because it's one of my favorite books, but um, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning. So Dr. Victor Frankl, he was a Holocaust survivor mm -hmm. and uh, he lost his, his wife. He lost his parents. I believe both of them. And I think a brother or something in the camps between Auschwitz and Dachau. And uh, he saw the, the worst things in a human being probably ever seen mm. arguably some of the worst things and when he got out he kind of looked back at all that and he, he kept 
journals of everything. And, and he talked about how in order to survive, it was a mindset. And in order to deal with the suffering, he had to apply a meaning to the suffering. Mm -hmm. And if there was no meaning applied to that suffering, then it would turn into despair. Mm -hmm. And that's when these people, he, he would talk about how he knew if somebody was going to die in the camp later that day, mm -hmm. by the way that they looked at in the morning, wow. they would be able to call it. And so he was able to take everything that he'd been through and put meaning to it. And it's just, it's a different type of strength when you can take those types of things and apply meaning to it to help so many other people. You know? Yeah. There's a gentleman, Jerry Flowers is his name, and he does sermons online. But one of them, he said, don't waste your pain. And that's where I'm at now. I could just crawl into bed and never come out. But what a waste. Because like you just said, it would be nothing but despair then. But if I can help somebody with this, I will. And it, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. It does. I, I would rather yeah. not. Yep, but, nobody's having fun yeah. dealing but, with all this bullshit. Right. You know what I mean? But I, I definitely will, you yeah. know, and I think all of us need to look at that in all of our situations, like what you're doing with Project Headspace and Timing. I love it. I just love it. Brad, I love what you're doing. You're doing this podcast like like you. Yeah. You could be like, screw this world. I'm done with this. I'm, I am lost my sight. And, you know, but you don't. You continue on and and. It just amazes me because I think about, especially your kids, like how they're going to be able to take this and be like, look at my dad. Wow. Like he lost his sight, but guess what? He still gets up every day and continues to take care of me, continues to be a strong person, gets on a podcast. I mean, it's amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Because I know all three of us in, the, in this room never thought we would be where we're at right now. Oh, no. Nope. But look at us. We have to give ourselves credit for that because mm -hmm. it honestly 100% is going to take all of us. It's yes. not just the Sam Myers Foundation or your foundation or the professionals or the teachers or the youth mental health first aid or the police officers. It's everybody. It's going to take every single one of us. And that's the scary part that it exactly that. And I've always said that it. If you want to change this, it's going to take every single one of us. And that's an intimidating thought. Yeah. But the thing is, it almost gives you a new found hope in humanity is when you do start working in the realms that, that we all work in right now mm -hmm. and you realize how much support you have yep. and how many people in the community are like, yeah, no, I'm 100% for that. What do you need? Right. And then you find so many other people that have been through something very similar and you're just like, I had no idea because nobody ever talks about this right. kind of stuff. Exactly. And then all these people that are sharing their stories with you because they've been through something similar, just knowing that somebody has had a similar journey makes you feel less alone. And then feeling less alone just lets you know that, okay, it this is a very heavy burden, but it's been carried by many. It's being carried by me right now. And it's just, right. it's incredibly difficult. After Sam passed in January of 2017, I did kind of a support group, little, it wasn't really a Bible study, but it was just, it's called Grief Share. Mm -hmm. And it's just about, you know, learning how to handle your grief and how to deal with your grief. And I remember feeling like the poor people at my table 
they were probably like, oh, no, because all I would do was cry the whole time. I mean, it had been a month, but I mean, just every single thing I read, I would cry. If they tried to call on me and ask, I would cry. I mean, that's all I did. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I want to apologize to everybody at this table. Like all I did was cry this whole time. And then this woman said to me, no, I said, but I learned so much from you. Like I look at you and I see it's been, I think it was like 15 years since this lady's daughter had died. And she's, and I said, you know, you give me hope that I'm going to make it. And she said, well, don't think you didn't teach anybody anything because I see you and I see how far I've come. And I was just like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to, to think that even in your grief and sorrow, you're not teaching somebody something, you really are. And the other thing too is, I just never think it's fair to have to apologize for crying either. Yeah. So I was just but, about to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's all right. We've cried on this Where's podcast a few times. Yeah. <laughs> Two episodes in a row, man. A few times. But when you're crying for something like that, I don't know why, you know, so many emotions are welcomed in our culture. But if you're crying, it's immediately accompanied by guilt and shame and embarrassment. And you're you know uncomfortable. I mean? Yeah. I've had people cry to me about a lot of things and it just, it's never bothered me because that's how you feel right now. If that's how you feel and you're comfortable to share that with me, then great. That must mean I'm an okay friend right. because you're, you're okay enough feeling, feeling vulnerable in front of me. Right. Being able to teach so many people by the pain that you're dealing with is just a completely different animal that a lot of people don't understand. So in, in addition to what you've done on the legislative level, can you talk about some of the other things that your foundation's actively doing? Because I see you guys all the time speaking somewhere, like whether it be a school, <laughs> mental health roundtable, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Of course, think, I always thank everybody for inviting us because like I said earlier, if nobody invited us, our story would mean, not, you know, it wouldn't get out there. And people, if there wasn't someone to listen to our story, then it wouldn't be helpful. So we appreciate when people invite us out. We just have a, a little bit of a dialogue where we just tell Sam's story and about all of his mental health issues, our journey in that, and then our journey through his suicide. So we will speak to anybody who invites us. We've been to schools, we've been to youth groups, we've been to church groups, we've been to the Illinois School Counselors Association. We're going down to Southern Illinois to one of the um, sororities is having a fundraiser and they're having us to come speak. It's just cool. And I know somebody might be like, oh, it's cool to go talk about your son. I mean, it's just cool that we're helping. Yeah, yeah that, right. that people are listening and that we're helping. We always hand out t-shirts every year in September, which this yep. year- um, I got two. <laughs> I actually meant to bring two tonight, but today, but I forgot, sorry. But we were very blessed with a huge donation this year. Huge for us. We're a very small foundation, but we were able to hand out 1,200 shirts this year for free. Nice. And yeah, and it, it just, it's cool. And the reason we do the t-shirts, sometimes people don't understand, it's because we want people to see others wearing that. And it might just give someone an ounce of hope. Oh, there are people who care. There are people who I could reach out to if they see somebody wearing the shirt. Every little bit helps is you, how I feel about it. Yes. You never know what that trigger is going to be for somebody to get the help that they need. Right. And that's one thing that I've been caught completely off guard by mm -hmm. with what we've done on our side, because we'll have somebody reach out that said, hey, I got a card at the festival that you did from a, a counselor and I wanted, you know, I was at that point and I reached out and you're just like, for a second, while it doesn't again, take any of the pain away, mm -hmm. you're filled with at least this pride of saying, okay, at least we did this with it. Right. At least we helped right. this one person out. And that might be because they heard you on a podcast. They saw a shirt somewhere and they're like, what is that? I want to learn about that. You have no idea. And you can't force anyone to consume information. No. Uh -huh. But if you put the information out there, 
you just hope that they'll find it when they need it and they'll right. be able to pull that out. So that totally makes sense mm -hmm. with the shirts. Right. So that is so right. cool. Sure. Do you guys have any other events coming up soon? We have the one in Sylvan, Illinois, Carbondale. We have that coming up. And also in Piatone, at Piatone Christian Church, we are speaking at night. And maybe I'll send that information to you yeah. and you can put it up on your, yep. I want to say it's the 24th, but I'm not 100% sure. And you can give me the information. Okay. We can put it out there too. But before I get to um, kind of wrapping this up, I also want to ask you about, you've talked about all of the things that, you know, what you've seen, your, your experience throughout all this. If somebody's out there, first off, what would you say the warning signs are? Because I know we've talked about them. Mm -hmm. I know it's super vague. It really could be anything. And, and you might know and you might not. But what warning signs do you openly try to make sure that you're educating the public on? I think change in behavior. But again, when you're talking about adolescence, it could just be adolescent behavior. Yeah. But I think it's just wise to be ears open, eyes open. A new set of friends. That was one for Sam that we completely missed. I'm tired. I don't want to live this way. Giving things away, important things that you know are important to that person and they are giving them to other people. I think it's important to remember too, like we were saying earlier, that it's going to take us all. Anybody can say, you look like you're having a hard time. Anybody can say that. And if that person reaches out to you, you don't have to be scared like, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I, I, can't fi I can't fix them. I don't know what to do. Anybody can say, well, let me have your hand and let's go find somebody that can help you. And I always talk about that being the bridge. We can all be the bridge from someone who needs help to someone who can give it. Any of us can do that. What's crazy is it takes that, just what you said, just somebody taking your hand and saying like, listen, maybe I understand what you're going through. Maybe I don't, mm -hmm. but I love you. Mm -hmm. I'm here. Yep. And so we'll figure this out. I'll bring you somewhere. Yep. And like, again, coming back real quick to how it takes everybody. You know, there was a time where I stopped by your house because we've done things together, mm -hmm. our organizations and stuff. And I remember I came over to your house to pick something up for something. And we were just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze for a little bit. And I was expressing some of my frustration because I was I've been working with one veteran to get him some help for so long. And immediately you were able to draw the parallels from what you do with your organization. You're like, no, I totally get it. Like we had to deal with an issue similar. And then from the organizational standpoint, it's so nice to work with other organizations because it's nice to hear like, OK, again, I'm not alone. Like other people are having the struggle. It's tough, but I'm glad that there's other people that understand right. what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And then the last thing I was going to ask you was, as far as if you think somebody in your life is having suicidal ideations, is thinking about it, or, or you notice any of those signs, you know, what do you recommend? Because I, I have to imagine it's not like the old school intervention style, get everybody surround them and start yelling things aggressively and saying, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Like, what do you recommend somebody do if they're worried about somebody else? Well, first of all, I'm not a professional. I'm only someone who of has, course. yeah, who has this experience. If somebody said to me, I'm thinking of ending my life, first and foremost, I would not leave that person alone. Even if they say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I just wouldn't. Somehow, some way, I would somehow stay with them or get somebody to stay with them that I felt could handle the situation. I would encourage them to get help. There's 
of course, the suicide hotline number. There's 741741. There's now 988. Those are all places you could call to get help. But first, like I said, I, I wouldn't leave the person and I would just maybe call to get some help while I stayed with them and talked to them. But then again, we can't force anybody to get help. So I think that is important to, to acknowledge too, even as hard as we try, there will still be suicides. So we have to keep that in mind that it's, we can do what we can do, but that's, that's all we can. We control what we can control. That's right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And uh, Brad, did you have any other questions about anything? Don't make me cry, Brad. I'll try, I'll try not <laughs> to. He was going to make you cry because he told me about a time that he heard you yell at your son once. And he said, that's the only time I've ever heard her yell ever. I'm sorry. And that was before we even started. And, and I said, that's the only time she's only yelled at her kid one time. That I've heard. And it wasn't even like yelling. <laughs> I, it wasn't even yelling. It, we, you were getting ready. You, it was in your old house on Elm Street. And we were getting ready to have an open house. Yes. And you spilled pop all over the carpet. Not I me. remember it. Not me. Okay, Damon. Thank Before you. you changed. <laughs> Thank you. You can be honest, and if it was Brad, you can say it was Brad. I, I don't know who it was. I'm sorry, Brad. Oh, it was I definitely re- Dan. It was I remember definitely Dan. I said, just get in the car. Right. I'm taking you guys home. <laughs> get in the car. Yep. You should. I remember it was Damon because you yelled. But yes, that, but that was the only time that... Well, let's just say this. I've known Brad for a really long time, really so long maybe time. that was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So. It's probably. Probably, probably more than that. Ago. But it my, made an impression. I'm sorry, Brad. No, a good one. impression. Okay. No, a good one. My mom yells at, my mom still yells at me. That's my fair. mom threw scissors at me when I was a little kid. She <laughs> denies it to this day. She moved a couch in front of the, it's still on the wall, the dent. I'm like, it's still there. She's like, nope, never happened. I'm like, okay, then I guess, you know what I mean? Like she just refuses. So, and when, when, um, my wife and I got married, the only advice that my wife or that my mother gave my wife, she wrote down on a card at their bridal shower was hit him <laughs> all that my mom wrote and she wasn't wrong I mean, i'm not saying that she was ever wrong but yeah so like yelling at your kid once i'm yeah. like that's awesome you know that's not bad at all well oh, i'll admit it's been more than once <laughs> i'm surprised oh, you remember that so. that's awesome no i remember that's... it because i did try not to be a yeller but i i, re- I was very upset that day i do remember understandably that. so it, yeah now i've i've moved and now i get it yeah. <laughs> I hey, we sold that kids. house and we sold that house so it worked out <laughs> now, and if anybody out there wants to get a hold of you, wants to talk to you, is curious about having you and Brandon come speak, anything like that, yeah. what are the best ways to get a hold of you? Well, of course, our Facebook page, Sam Myers Foundation. Um, we also have a phone number, 815-671-2058. You can text us or call us. Um, you can also email us, and our email address is on the foundation page. Very cool. Okay. Well, Brad, do you have any other questions? I don't have any. Kathy, did you have anything else that you wanted no, to share? I just wanted to say thank you so much. For sure. Thank yeah. you. Thank Please you for always make sure that you're keeping us updated with anything that you guys have coming out so we can make sure that we're always sharing it. You know, usually we end every uh, every podcast with like a, we call it ending on a high note, just sharing a story that's incredibly positive and uplifting, but I didn't think we needed to do one for this one because the whole podcast has essentially been that. I can't thank you enough for, again, having the strength to go through what you've gone through and to be able to, one, talk about it openly, two, turn into an organization, three, have that organization teach other people about what it means to go through it, four, affect change on legislative levels so people are just, man, they have to learn about mental health so we can stop 
these things from happening and yes. truly break the stigma. Agreed. So thank you. That's for a being high there. note. All those are high notes. Absolutely. Sounds great. Okay. All right, Kathy. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Anyone who is out there listening to us, a special message as always to my mom, because I know she's still listening to this podcast. I love you and keep being strong and we will see you guys on the next episode. Thank you.